we come to what is almost certainly our final sermon in this sermon series in Ephesians. Uh, We began this series uh, this past year, and we are coming to an end this morning. And so we're looking at Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to pick up where we left off last Lord's Day. We're going to begin in verse 18. And we're going to read down to the end of the chapter, to verse 24. And, and yet, in the sermon, we're going to focus this morning on verses 18 to 20 in specific. And so I know if you have a copy of Scripture, you're going to find it helpful to have that open and to be reading along with me as we look at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 24. Uh, most recently, the Apostle Paul has brought this applicatory section into the clearest focus when he has talked about the spiritual battle in which believers are engaged. He has has set out the riches of God's grace in Christ in chapters 1 through 3. He has talked about God's grace in calling him into gospel ministry in chapter 3. And then he has applied the gospel, first to the church, then to marriage, then to parents and children, then to masters and servants, And then he has brought it all the way home and he has said, as God has redeemed us and he has drawn us out of Satan's kingdom and he has brought us into his kingdom, he has planted us in enemy-occupied territory. And he has put us in the fiercest battle in all of human history and he has told us that he has given us everything for that battle. And so Paul has expounded there in the preceding verses on... The, the spiritual warfare in which we are engaged and the call for us to stand and to be strong in the Lord, to take up the whole armor of God. And having set that out, Paul now says in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you may also know how I I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, sorry, couldn't get that out this morning. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, when I was a very young man coming out of seminary, I had a number of churches in the upstate of South Carolina and in western North Carolina asking me to candidate, and on one occasion, Anna and I went to candidate in a church in Statesville, North Carolina, and as we sat down with the search committee, they, they went around and said, we want to give you our testimony, one after another, and when they came to the last man who was a member of that search committee, Um, I'll never forget just what a powerful testimony he had. He was probably in his 80s at that time. He had been a farmer. And he said, you know, we were always in church. Growing up, I was in church. He said, my wife and I went to church every Sunday. He said, but I didn't know the Lord. 
And he said, one day when I was in my early 40s, my wife and I and our seven-year-old son were driving, and we got in an accident, and my seven-year-old lay in the back of the car dying. And he said, I freaked out because I didn't know what to do. And he said, at that moment, my wife turned to me and she said, you better start praying. And he said, I had never prayed before. I didn't know how to pray, but I got on my knees and I started praying. And he said, the Lord took my son, but he saved me. And he said, and I have sought to be a man deeply committed to prayer throughout my Christian experience because God taught me at that moment what it was to pray. What a powerful testimony. And yet, if we are honest, all of us struggle with prayer. We struggle to take our needs to the Lord in prayer. As we just sang um, that great hymn, Take It to the Lord in Prayer, how often we feel our weakness and our deficiency, how often we feel like that is the grace that falls by the wayside. By the way, if we're not doing better in life, it's because we don't pray as we ought to. If we're succumbing to temptations, it's because we're not going to the Lord when we're tempted as we ought to. And the Apostle Paul brings this great letter to a close with this focus and this emphasis on the grace of prayer. Having, having told the believers about that spiritual warfare in which they're engaged, he now says to them, praying, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keeping alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Now, I want us to just focus on two things as we look at Paul's exhortation for us to be a people who pray at all times, all kinds of prayers, perseveringly in the midst of the battle in which we're engaged. I want us to consider the call to a prayerful life, and then I want us to consider the call to a prayer-fueled ministry, a prayerful life and a prayer-fueled ministry. Well, notice Paul is tying together seamlessly this call to prayer with that call to take up the whole armor of God. There have been theologians who have said that prayer is part of the armor of God. I don't think it is. As, as one theologian has rightly said, prayer is the atmosphere in which we put on the armor of God. If I am going to put on the armor of God, if I am going to take up the whole armor of God, if I'm going to be clad with that armor that Christ wore, in his battle against the evil one, in my warfare, then I have to do it in prayer. I've always loved the words of that hymn, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. The hymn writer says, Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. And the old version says, Put on each piece with prayer. I remember Joel Beakey telling a story many years ago about one Puritan who would wake up in the morning and when he put his shirt on, he would ask God to put the breastplate of righteousness on him. And when he put his shoes on, he would pray that God would shod his feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, that he, he saw in that imagery something he needed to appropriate to himself in prayer. And Paul is very much telling us if we are going to fight victoriously in this battle that our lives have to be accompanied with praying down the divine blessing of God. Um, if we try to stand on our own, we will always fall. If we think that we're strong enough, if we think that we're smart enough, if we think that we're wise enough, if we think that we have any resources in ourselves, we're going to find that we are horribly wrong every time we succumb to temptation. 
And so Paul is, Paul is teaching us the, the central place that prayer ought to have in our lives. Um, you know, it's not just for the spiritual battle. That is obviously the immediate context. It is for all of life. Now, uh, it is that battle. And, you know, it's, it's helpful for us to realize that we are not being called to do anything that Christ didn't do. You know, when you reflect on the life of the Lord Jesus, the entire life of Christ was a life of prayer. He would often withdraw from the multitudes. He would spend whole nights in prayer. Um, when he was tested and tried in the Garden of Gethsemane, he turned to his father in prayer. When he was weighed down in grief, when his soul was in agony, realizing that he was going to have to drink the cup of wrath that we should drink, that he was going to have to take the hell that we deserve, when, when, when he did that, he went to the Lord in prayer. He, he fell on his face. He was so earnest in prayer and so weighed down with grief that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And most remarkably, perhaps, is when he hung on the cross. The entire time he was nailed to the tree, he prayed. I think I've mentioned this to you that um, historians from the Greco-Roman world have noted that the, the typical response of criminals was bitterness and spewing cursing and hatred when they were nailed to a tree. But Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What a, what a marvelous testimony. How could Jesus do that when he was nailed to the cross for our salvation because his whole life he was committed in every circumstance whether it was thanking his father for the bread before he multiplied the loaves and the fish and distributed them or whether it was him thanking his father for the bread in the supper when it was broken every single thing Jesus did reflected that he was a man of deep and unwavering prayer and most notably in his in his withstanding the temptations of the evil one. In the context of spiritual battle, John Gerstner says this, listen very carefully, Christ by prayer and the Spirit defeated Satan in one of his most vicious attacks, and Christ lives again in the Christian to defeat Satan again in the age-old battle. The same Christ who defeated the evil one by committing himself in prayer to his Father is the same Christ who indwells us who not only indwells us, but who takes our weak prayers, because every prayer we have ever prayed is utterly weak and in itself ineffectual, except that Christ intercedes. And Thomas Watson says this, it's beautiful. He says, Christ takes our weak prayers and by his intercession turns them into a sharp arrow that he directs to the throne of grace. Isn't that an awesome thought? He takes your weak and feeble, my weak and feeble prayers, and he intercedes to cover them and to perfect them and to make them what they should be and directs them straight to the throne of grace. That's amazing. I don't know if you've ever felt your weakness. I feel it every time I get on my knees. Um, what am I praying? How am I praying? And Paul is going to direct us here, not just to pray in the midst of the battle, but but when we're to pray, and what we're to pray, and how we're to pray, notice this. He says, praying at all times. I told you the story about that man who learned to pray when the Lord took his son. Um, many 
Christians only pray when there are trials, and it's good and right for us to pray in trials. The psalmist teaches us how to pray in those trials. But, but we are called to pray in the good times. I oftentimes think that's the mark of a really, truly spiritual man or woman is if they pray when things are good, not just when they're hard. Paul says praying at all times, everywhere. Um, it's a great little book by a mystic named Brother Lawrence called Practicing the Presence of Prayer. And Brother Lawrence talks in there about when I'm washing the dishes, am I living quorum Deo before the face of God? Am I recognizing that the triune God is right there filling heaven and earth in the most menial tasks I'm doing? Um, it, it is exactly what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that we are to pray Quorum Deo, before the face of God, in the presence of God. Um, you know, the Lord is ready to hear and to answer our prayers, and if we would remember that he loves to hear and answer our prayers. He commands us to pray because he wants us to know how ready he is to intervene. What a marvelous thought. God is not, God is not in, in eternal glory saying, you know, I may or may not answer a prayer. He, he stands ready. Uh, we see this, don't we, when Daniel goes to pray. And the Lord tells him, I've already heard you. The angel came, the Lord knew. He already, he already answered that prayer. He's already ordained that his people pray to him, and now he is calling us to at all times. And then notice, he says, uh, praying at all times in the Spirit. Now, I think that this may be better translated in spirit. And John Calvin, I think, rightly notes that what Paul is teaching here is that we're to pray to God from our hearts. That it's not about babbling words, it's not about heaping up more and more words, it's not about the length of the prayer, but that when we fall on our knees and our face before God, that we would be pouring our hearts out before him. And, and there's something that we experience when we do that. We realize when we get up that we have met with the living God. That the God who searches and knows all things, the God before whose eyes everything is laid bare, sees when we cry out to him in the inner depths of our hearts. Um, I think that's also what Christ means when he says, go into your closet. I don't think he physically means a closet. He means in the secret place, in that, that part of you that ought to be reserved for the Lord and ought to be crying out to him from inside the very depths of our being. And then notice, Paul not only says at all times and in our spirits, but he says with all prayer and supplication. Now he gives us different kinds of prayers, and I think what Paul is saying is that there are times when it's fitting and appropriate for us to be praying prayers of thanksgiving. It is times, really all the time, that it's fitting for us to be praying prayers of confession, of our sins. It is, it is fitting at other times for us to pray lamentations. It's fitting to cry out when we're in difficult places. How long, O Lord? It's fitting to cry out with the psalmist. Uh, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? It's fitting for us to pray prayers of praise and rejoicing, all kinds of prayers. Um, one little help, which you all probably know, is that acronym ACTS, that you would pray prayers of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. 
that we would learn to diversify our prayer life, um, is what Paul is essentially saying. And then notice what he says. Not only are we to pray at all times in our spirits with all kinds of prayers, but notice he says, to that end, keeping alert with all perseverance. Um, Prayer is difficult. I feel the difficulty of praying. Prayer is difficult. We don't pray more because it's difficult. In fact, prayer is the grace that highlights the measure of our faith. Because if my prayer life is wanting, it means that my faith is low. Jesus tells this to us, doesn't he, when he gives that, uh, that parable of the importunate widow, and she comes to that unjust judge, and she pleads with him for her cause, and he turns her away and turns her away, and then finally he says, look, I don't fear God, I don't fear man, but this widow is going to drive me crazy. I'm going to give her what she wants. And Jesus says, so we ought to pray in that way. And then he says, and this is a frightening verse, This is one of the things, you know, you kind of wish Jesus hadn't said, but you're glad he did because you need it. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So that if my prayers are not persevering prayers, then I need him to increase my faith. And I need to persevere in asking him to increase my faith. And I need to cry out with the father of the boy, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And he loves to answer those prayers. Um, The Apostle Paul is teaching us here in just a very pregnant single verse all of these things about what our prayer life ought to look like. And then notice that final clause, making supplication for all the saints. You know, I am often convicted that I am more ready to talk about people than to pray for them. We are, we need to be a whole lot quicker to pray for people than to talk about them. We need to be a whole lot quicker to run to the throne of grace for each and every one of God's people. When they are struggling, when they are defiant, when they are not in a good place spiritually, and when they're doing very well. For all the saints, in all circumstances, at all times. I want to encourage us to make that more and more our practice in the time that the Lord gives us here, the remaining time that we would become people who are more and more committed to prayer in our homes um, with one another. I need that. The apostle here intimates that all the saints need that praying for all the saints because all the saints need each other's prayers. We need to intercede for one another. Now, Paul secondly does something so wonderful here. He moves from this call for prayer and spiritual battle at all times, all kinds of prayers, persevering prayer for all the people of God, to now turn to his own ministry. And remember, Paul is in prison. Paul is almost certainly writing this letter from a Roman prison. His circumstances uh, are not to be envied. And, And as he's in prison, Paul's concern is for the spiritual well-being of the believers in Ephesus. 
and his concern is for the success of the gospel in his ministry, even while he's in chains. Paul doesn't ask them, pray for me also that I can get out of this place. It's not wrong to pray that. There are other places where the apostles do intimate, and Paul intimates that he believes that their prayers are going to get him out ultimately. And Peter, remember, was singing hymns and praying, and God sent that angel to deliver him. But Paul is not first and foremost concerned about God changing his circumstances. Paul is most concerned that God gives him powerful grace for powerful preaching for the salvation of those that God is sending him to. And so notice Paul says, also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, this is interesting. If you read this on a prima facie reading, you might think Paul's saying, pray for me that I'd be able to find the right words to say to preach excellently. But Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 that he did not come with excellent speech or with great oratory skills, but he came in preaching that demonstrated the spirit and power and that he determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And any of you who have read Paul's letters know that he is not a man who lacks words. In fact, um, theologians have, have pointed out rightly that Paul was such a master of words that there were times where he made up words to get a point across because no word existed to capture the essence of union with Christ and what the believer has in him. So Paul didn't lack words. What is Paul then praying for? Paul is praying that God would give him boldness and power and that the preaching would cut to the very hearts of the people of God. Um, you know, well, that story of Charles Spurgeon, the great Calvinistic Baptist minister of the 19th century in England, and a group of ministers had come to him and visited um, visited the church, the New Park Street Chapel there, and uh, Spurgeon would preach every week to 5,000 plus people, no sound system, they say everybody could hear him anywhere they were, he was such a powerful preacher, and um, one of these young ministers or ministerial students asked him, uh, what, what, the, what is the secret of your ministry as they're walking around? Can you, can you give us some hints as to the secret of your success? And, and Spurgeon said to them, before I do, I, I want to I show you the boiler room. And they said, we don't want to see the boiler room. And he said, no, 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 you have to see the boiler room. So he takes them downstairs into that coal-burning room, and there were 100-plus people on their knees praying. And Spurgeon says, that's the secret to the success of my ministry. You see, Spurgeon understood what Paul understood, what please, Lord, we need to get so desperately in our day. Um, the apostle is here teaching us that we would be praying fervently for ministers of the gospel, that they might have boldness, that they might have a demonstration of God's spirit and power, because that's the only way the kingdom of God is going to really advance. It's the only way the church prospers. It's the only way the church has an impact on the world. If we have not learned anything 
if we have not learned anything in the last 200 years, it's that entertainment, gimmicks, plans and strategies do not cause the church to have an impact on the world. It is the powerful, undiluted, unadulterated preaching of Christ. It is preaching against sin. It is preaching that leads to the foot of the cross. It's preaching that hurts. Not in the sense of a minister being belligerent in the name of courage, but in the sense of the Spirit of God accompanying the Word of God and, and cutting to the very recesses of the hearts of the people of God. You know, it's interesting to me that in this great letter, that's how Paul brings it to a close. He set out the riches of the gospel of God's grace in Christ in chapter 1, and he ends it by saying, pray for me that I can make those things known boldly as I ought to speak. And let me just say this, Paul was not a man who lacked boldness in himself. And yet he realized there is a spiritual boldness, and there are spiritual words that God has to give a minister, and he can only give them if the people are praying that God gives them to him. Um, I want to encourage you, Brody McCoy's praying during the Sunday school hour with several individuals. Go to that. Avail yourself of that. We need to be praying fervently. We're going to start evening worship back here in in another week, and the last Sunday of every month, we do a, a corporate prayer meeting. That's so important. Sinclair Ferguson has rightly said, if you want to know the spiritual condition of a church, if you want to take its spiritual temperature, let me see, it, let me see the prayer meeting. If we're not doing that, we, we can't expect to see the powers of the world to come breaking into time and space. Um... I want to ask you to pray for me. I need your prayers. Um, I don't have resources in myself. No minister does. Uh, ministers need you to pray that God protects them from the attacks of Satan. Ministers need you to pray that God will protect them in holiness. And they need you to pray that God will give them power to preach the gospel as they ought to. You know, when we turn on the television... And we watch the world just unhinged everywhere in every country, this fallen, evil world. Our, our reaction ought not to be, man, we really got to get a better political leader in there next time. Our first reaction ought to be, we need to pray that God so blesses the preaching of his word, that the powers of heaven are known here on earth, and that God would shake the heavens and the earth. There's a story about Samuel Davies, who is called the Apostle to Virginia, who's also the president of Princeton College, New College in New Jersey, which is now Princeton University, and a very powerful, very powerful preacher. In fact, Martin Lujan says he was the greatest preacher in American history, and, and he may be right. And Davies himself had sat under the preaching of a Presbyterian minister in the farmlands in Pennsylvania, and revival broke out. And it was so powerful that whenever Davies went by that church building, he would say, this is the gate of heaven. Here I have met with God. That's what Paul is after. Paul wants you to have that experience. 
I want to have that experience. This ought to be the gate of heaven when God pours down the divine blessing, when we pray it down. Now, I'm going to say this this morning. We can go from this place. We can say, that's great. That's true. I needed to hear that. Or we can go and say, I hated that. I can't wait to get out of here. Or we can say, I'm going to commit to asking the Lord to make me a man, woman, boy, and girl of prayer. Because if we do that, and if we commit together to that, there is no end in what we'll see the Lord do among us. And you don't have to have great numbers. You don't have to have great oratory skills for God to do great things among us. Because we have the infinite and eternal God. And I say this reverently, because we exist for him, not him for us, but we have him at our disposal. And all of the resources of the infinite and eternal God, he makes yours if you will turn to him and call on him. And we will pray in all times, in all ways, persevering in it for all the saints, and especially praying for a powerful blessing of God on the ministry of the gospel. I hope that you'll be encouraged to do that. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do acknowledge our weakness in this aspect of our lives. We acknowledge, Lord, that we have not been men and women men and women, boys and girls, who have committed ourselves to this sort of prayer as we ought. And so we do pray that you would please pour out your spirit on us. We pray that you would give us the spirit of grace and supplication. We ask our God that you would make us a people who are eager to pray at all times, in all ways, for all people. We do ask, Lord, that we would be known as a people of prayer. And we ask that you would show us, again, as you have told us in your word, that you are a God who loves to hear and to answer our prayers. Would you do that among us? Would you make the gospel ministry powerful among us, Lord? We cannot do it without you. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask you to move among us to this end and to make us a people who are able to stand in the evil day because we're a people who are praying in the good days and the bad days. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.